This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insight hour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash insight hour. Welcome to the Joseph Goldstein Insight Hour. This podcast is an expression of our shared interest in self-discovery. Join Joseph as he shares his deep knowledge of the path of mindfulness. If you are interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Joseph. By now you are fully oriented after this day of orientation. Tonight I'd like to speak a little bit about the larger context of our practice. In some ways it feels as if this retreat is a gathering of friends, of very old friends, you know, meeting again in a situation where we've probably been meeting for lifetimes on this journey of ours. It's a journey that we could say, has its source, its source of inspiration. In something that happened over 2,500 years ago, the enlightenment of the Buddha. You see, as you walk around the building, you see many Buddha images some of you may perhaps be wondering you know, what they are, or what they represent, or what our relationship to them is. The Buddha was a human being, he was a man. Who, upon contemplating certain very basic and obvious truths, that is the truth of being born, getting older, getting sick, of dying. Kind of universal aspects of this process of existence 
He was a man who motivated by the contemplation of those very basic truths undertook to find out what it's all about. And just that very motivation is rare among people. And all around us we see people being born and getting old and getting sick and dying. Yet for the most part, it doesn't inspire us to inquire. We just kind of drift along with the flow of existence. But the Buddha, who at that time, before his awakening, was <coughs> named Siddhartha Gautama, he was unusual in this, in this way. And that is, he saw these universal truths and it touched some place so deeply inside of him. Some place of inquiry, some place of investigation. Some place of wanting to understand what the nature of this life is about. A huge undertaking to somehow disentangle the mind, to disentangle our lives from the web of attachments and beliefs and ideas and opinions and tradition, all these things which keep us blindly going on in our lives, took this enormous amount of energy and courage to say, I don't want to just go along with that. I want to find out something that is most basic, most true. And so he made what is called the Great Renunciation. He renounced. He renounced his family. He renounced the kingdom. He renounced his way of being. He renounced his comfort. He renounced it all in order to look, in order to explore. And he spent six years searching in various ways, doing all kinds of um, ascetic practices. Perhaps some of you have seen there are some very striking images. They're called the image of the emaciated Buddha because it represents a Buddha image which represents Siddhartha Gautama in the time of his ascetic practice where it describes the diminishing amount of food that he would eat in his quest for understanding. Finally, it was down to something like one grain of rice every fourth day, whatever. And in the image that's um, portrayed, it's said in the text that when he reached his stomach, to touch his stomach, he would touch his backbone, go right through. So emaciated, so so totally exhausted. After six years of this kind of practice, he realized that, in a phrase that you find very often in the Buddhist text, that it was not tending to edification. It was not really helping very much, this kind of 
extreme ascetic practice. All that was happening was that he was becoming weaker and weaker. So he took food after six years. He took food, he regained some strength, and he sat down under what is now called the Bodhi tree in Bodh Gaya, India, and he sat down with the resolve, sat down under the tree, with the resolve that he was not going to get up from his seat until he had attained complete realization, until he had realized the deepest, most emancipating truth. Just picture yourself coming into the hall and making that kind of resolve, that you are not going to get up from your seat until you have penetrated to the deepest truth. When we reflect upon our own possibility of doing that, we can have some sense of appreciation and respect for the power of the Buddha's mind, the enormous strength and courage to make that resolution. It was his very good fortune, I suppose, good karma, but he was enlightened that very evening. And said that he spent the next six or seven weeks in the area around the Bodhi tree contemplating his understanding. He then began teaching. At first he was somewhat reluctant because he surveyed the world with his eye of wisdom, his eye of compassion, and he saw all these beings suffering But he also saw how much difficulty there would be in going out and trying to teach, to explain what was true. People were so enmeshed, are so enmeshed, in desire and clinging and attachment and holding and views. And so his first, as the tradition has it, his first mm, inclination was a lot of trouble. You know, people are not going to want to hear this. They're not going to want to listen to practice. But then again, he looked and he saw so much suffering. People wanting happiness and doing the very thing which causes pain and suffering, it moved him through the power of his compassion to begin teaching. We really are the heirs of his enlightenment. In the most extraordinary way, the teachings of the Buddha's enlightenment, the Buddha's understanding, have been passed down through all these thousands of years in the most clear and direct and systematic way. It's this extraordinarily precious treasure which has been preserved and which we are all the heirs to. And you will see in the course of this retreat, as we make our way through the intricacies of the mind, through all the subtleties and the nuances and levels and strengths and weaknesses and doubts and fears, 
see that throughout our journey, there's this amazingly direct and clear guide and path and way. So it gives tremendous, tremendous inspiration to us in our practice. These teachings, these Vipassana teachings, kind of meditation is called Vipassana meditation, comes from the very earliest teachings of the Buddha. As far as we can tell, it comes most directly from what he actually taught, unencumbered by mm, elaboration over the centuries of development of Buddhism. And so we're going back, we're going back in in this very direct way to the source. And the teachings were elaborated in a very famous discourse called The Four Foundations of Mindfulness. This whole technique of vipassana, of insight meditation, is the practice of what the Buddha laid out in this particular discourse. The development of the four foundations of mindfulness. So it's as if we're on this very direct connection. We're connected very accurately and precisely with the energy of the Buddha's enlightenment and all those beings who have walked this path in all these thousands of years. We have tremendous support for what we're doing. And in a very real sense, we also come here together to actually meet the Buddha. Not metaphorically, not through an image, but to actually meet, see, embrace, become one with the Buddha. There was one monk in the Buddhist time who used to sit right up front in the congregation of monks and would just stare at the, the image, the physical form of the Buddha, because he was so beautiful, such a beautiful being. And he would sit there and stare and gaze. And this went on for some months, until finally the Buddha reprimanded him. He said, you can look at this form for a hundred years, and you won't see the Buddha. It's only those who see the Dharma who understand the Dharma, who see the Buddha. So really what we're doing in this retreat, what we're undertaking, is to reveal to ourselves, or uncover, or open to, or unfold, our essential Buddha nature. So in that sense, our undertaking is not one of reaching out for anything. It's not one of ambition. 
It's not one of becoming something. It's not a reaching out. It's a settling back and an opening. If you can understand this, and you will understand it on many levels as the retreat goes on, you find that it's a tremendous relief. Because each moment is our Buddha nature revealing itself. In every moment of seeing or hearing or smelling or sensation in the body or a thought or an emotion, every moment is the Dharma, is the truth, revealing itself to us. And our task is to settle back and to open to the truth of each moment. We don't have to change anything, and we don't have to make anything special happen. It's to be present. To be present in a totally full and complete and exact and balanced way. So what we'll be doing for these three months is a refining of our perception rather than an effort to become something. Do you see the difference of the, the difference of the quality of energy in those two things? One is a reaching out in which we're off balance and striving and ambitious and frustrated, and the other is a settled backedness into the moment with the energy to continually refine the perception of that moment. As we do this, whole worlds of understanding begin to open up within us. We meet the Buddha, we become the Buddha. One thing that may help you to understand the meditative process a bit and to avoid some confusion, there are two main streams of meditative practice. One is the development of one-pointed concentration, and the other is the development of insight or wisdom. In the development of one-pointed concentration, we take a single object, anything. It can be a mantra, it can be a light, it can be a sound, it can be a visualization. And we train the mind to stay on that object, and it becomes absorbed, in it, it becomes steady on it, it becomes powerful. All sorts of psychic phenomena begin to happen. Tremendous tranquility. That's not what we're doing. What we're doing in Vipassana is not to have the mind become absorbed in a particular object, but to be aware of changing objects to be aware of this whole passing show of changing phenomena. And so there's one basic, you could 
we call it a basic principle or a basic guideline for this retreat. And if you can integrate it into your understanding, it will be of tremendous help and value to you. And the, the basic principle of Vipassana practice is that it is not important what it is that's happening. What is important is how we are relating to what's happening. What is happening is beyond our control. You'll go through everything. The ups and the downs and highs and lows and happy and sad and depressed and excited. And the whole range of experience will arise. What we're practicing is not to have a particular state emerge or stay fixed. What we're practicing is learning how to relate to all the changing elements of experience with balance, with openness, with sensitivity. So again, when we understand this, there can be a huge sigh of relief because we don't have to be concerned with having any one particular experience. Whatever is given, whatever is presented, is fine. Our job is to open to it. Something that may help you get into the spirit of the practice. In one of the retreats that I was doing, uh, it actually was in Bodhgaya a couple of years ago. I was reflecting upon the difference in practice when we practice with the sense of obligation. Now, I ought to be mindful. It's our duty to be mindful. You've come here, and you've arranged your lives, and it's your moral obligation to be mindful. And when I saw it from that perspective, all my mind did was rebel. You know, that may be my moral duty, but I'm not going to do it. And finding all these ways to resist, and I'm sure you will explore the many subtleties of resistance. But then something flipped, and instead of thinking of it as my duty, that it's something I was supposed to do, I began to see each moment as an invitation to be mindful. So each moment's experience was just another invitation to me to again be aware. And that changed the whole attitude, the whole energy. I didn't feel imprisoned by my duty, but rather I was happy and grateful for another opportunity. So I put that out simply as a suggestion for you to explore a little bit the attitude 
that you are bringing to the practice because the attitude will very much condition your experience. It's so wonderful to be silent together. I think I'll stop now. (laughs) Well, we're all very happy that you're here. As in many things, there's a catch, and there is something that happens in exchange for um, the presence of people here serving you in whatever way you can. They can. In a retreat center in Sri Lanka, all of the food that is eaten by the people who are doing the intensive practice is donated by people in the village. And it's considered such an honor to be able to feed somebody who is engaging in this kind of process of deep exploration that, in fact, to be able to bring food and prepare food for someone who's sitting there, there's a waiting list of up to one year. And people apply, and about a year later they get noticed that that their name has come up to be able to, to provide food. And what happens is that often the night before, the whole village will come down with rice and vegetables and whatever and just spend the night preparing it and then offer it the next morning to the people who are practicing. The catch is really that the responsibility then of the people receiving such generosity, such offerings, is the sincerity of their effort. The responsibility is not in any way a particular state of experience or a product or an attainment. The responsibility is centered around the sincerity of the effort and honoring that commitment to be as full and present and caring in one's practice, to offer back that same, that same quality of attentiveness and care. This is an important distinction, and it's not always an easy distinction to make on day 35 and 36 and 37 and 38. It refers back to what Joseph was was just speaking about, that there's no particular state and there's no particular experience and there is no particular product that one's effort is directed towards in being here. You might be sleepy today and sleepy tomorrow and sleepy next week and sleepy the day the retreat ends and that would be fine. It's hard to believe, but it really would be fine. What is important is the creativity and the openness and the understanding with which we learn to relate to our experience. And transforming our relationship to ourselves and to our experience is a product of sincere and continuous effort only. It's not as though some people have a knack for it and other people find it difficult or that there's a very particular kind of angle which 
if we could only grasp it and somehow approach the whole problem from just this precise, mystifying way, then it would all fall together. It's only a question of a very patient and persistent sincerity of effort. And so very consistently throughout the retreat, this will be the message and this will be the reminder. You will remind yourselves, we'll try to remind you, and you'll probably remind one another. Just to be patient, just to begin again, and to move on from moment to moment. Barry, the town of Barry, although it doesn't have very good pizza, does have a statue in the middle of town, which we were just delighted to see when, when we first came, when we first moved here. And it's a statue of someone or other, I don't even know whom. And underneath is the Barry town motto, which is, be tranquil and alert. So the, the day we moved in, we actually, the first thing we did was go to the pizza parlor. <laughs> and immediately after that, in walking around town, we saw this, and we thought that it was just perfect to be in a town with such a motto. These are the two aspects of the practice that we'll talk about and work with and see balanced in different ways. The aspect of tranquility, of just calming down and slowing down, being at ease with our experience, being spacious with our experience, and the qualities of alertness and awakeness, so that we're more fully aware and more fully alive to each moment's sensation, or thought, or sound, whatever it might be, each moment's experience. We'll see that um, very delicate interrelationship between these two elements of our effort, tranquility and alertness. The most helpful way to view the retreat is in tiny little increments. Not to think of it as three months, or a number of weeks, or even a number of days, but as close as you can possibly get to the moment, to this very moment, over and over and over again. So far, I don't know of anybody who's calculated the number of moments that one can experience in three months of being here. Possibly somebody has. Some very enterprising yogi has sat down and said, well, (laughs) this many moments in a minute, this many minutes in an hour. But to view it as a succession of moments, with the moment that is presenting itself right here and now, as the one we are relating to, without too much regard, for what has already gone by, and without too much expectation or speculation about what may come, but returning over and over again 
to right here and now. We begin the retreat with taking the triple refuge. This is refuge in the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha. We take refuge to provide a sense of beginning anew, of relinquishing concepts and attitudes and habits of mind that may have governed the way we've lived, the way we've viewed ourselves, the way we viewed what we're capable of, the way we viewed what life is about, what our lives are about, trying to let go of them, to relinquish them, and to take refuge in a journey that is a whole new beginning, that is not bound by and governed by or driven by all of those old concepts and images and ideas about ourselves and about our lives. We take refuge in the Buddha not so much as a particular being who lived 2,500 years ago, but we take refuge in the Buddha as the symbol of what is possible, as the symbol of being free, of being completely free, of being liberated. We take refuge in the Buddha as a symbol of being integrated, not having a life or living a life that is together in one aspect and falling apart in another, but a life that is a complete expression of understanding and love and compassion. We take refuge in that possibility, understanding that that possibility is as real and alive for us as it was and as it was actualized by this particular figure. We take refuge in the Dharma, which is the teachings of the Buddha, which perhaps could be more accurately or precisely translated as the truth or the law, the law of how things are, or the law of nature. We take refuge in the nature of things. We take refuge in the understanding that we have to do our part and the Dharma will really take care of the rest. Our part is to open up and to look, to see with clarity and with honesty. The Dharma, which is the truth, or the nature of things, will in turn reveal itself to us. So as Joseph said, in some ways we can all breathe a sigh of relief. There's, there's only one thing we really have to do. We have to learn how to do it well, and we have to learn how to do it consistently and continuously. But it's not very complex and elaborate and, and burdensome and hard to understand. It's just that, that effort to be in the moment and to open, to open to what that experience is saying right then. We take refuge in the Dharma, in the truth of how things are. 
We take refuge in the Sangha, which traditionally has meant the order of monks and nuns who have preserved the teaching throughout these years and is also often used as a way of expressing the connection of all of us who walk this path. It's a way of expressing the understanding of how deeply we affect one another and how much inspiration and help we can all provide for one another through the impeccability of our own effort. And it's recognizing that there's not one person in this room, really, who's going to be isolated or alone, even though you may not say another word until the retreat ends, that there's a tremendous connection between all of us that gets expressed in many, many silent ways. And that in some way we're all doing this together. We take refuge in that. We surrender to that fact and appreciate that fact as the foundation, the basis for, for doing the retreat and for caring for one another throughout this retreat. From everybody that's sitting here, there's, there's a necessity really to, to put forth one's effort with a spirit of generosity and opening. It's a recognition that just as we are not isolated from one another, the meditation in a formal sense of sitting in a certain posture on a pillow or in a chair or on a bed <laughs> is not isolated from the rest of our day, from the rest of our lives. Every moment that we're here is a process of developing the meditation in some way, whether we're sitting down or we're walking or we're lying down or we're walking around or whether we're eating, whatever it is. And that's the preciousness of this opportunity, that there is nothing else to do here. That it is, it is a completely integrated and whole experience of coming in touch with our own nature and the nature of things, using every moment. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insighthour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash insighthour.